Your prayer brings you in alignment with the purposes and love and grace of God. He equips you to overcome. He strengthens you to overcome. He stands you up and he walks alongside with you and will never leave you, never abandon you, never forsake you. Why? Because he loves you with an everlasting love. Please hear it. Please hear it. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. We have been wrestling with the book of Revelation. It is not an easy book to understand and to study, but we're coming to the penultimate chapter of the closing drama of the book, and chapters 21 and 22 are some of the most exciting chapters to be found anywhere in Revelation. And so we're beginning at verse 1. The Apostle John writes these words, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the waters of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Let me begin this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever found yourself longing for something to take place? You just cannot wait for an event to happen. And it may be you're here this morning and you're expecting your first child. Or you're here this morning expecting your first grandchild or first great-grandchild. 
And you know a little of the joy and thrill when a wee one enters into a family. And if you are expecting your first child, there is every possibility you are feeling not only excited, but also a little overwhelmed. And that is entirely natural. Because at this point, if your new baby is coming in the next few weeks, you are praying that when you get home from the hospital, your new baby will come with a manual. And it doesn't come with a manual. And you're not quite sure what to do and will, it, will you manage And if it's baby number four or five, it's, okay, another one, and you're moving right on. If, on the other hand, you've applied for a job, and it's a career move you have always wanted, you've longed for this position, you believe it is perfect for your giftedness and your desire and passion, and you believe you can make a significant difference, And you are just thrilled skinny with the opportunity of taking up this new position. Just can't wait. Or maybe you've put in an offer for a new home. And the layout and the location is perfect for you. So excited. Can't wait. And if you have any sense of anticipation, excitement and the joy involved in some of the things I've been describing... That's just a little taste of the excitement and sense of overwhelming joy that the Apostle John contains in chapter 21. And he begins in a wonderful manner. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And there was now no longer any sea. Now there's a lot we don't know about heaven. But there's a great deal we absolutely know. We know that John is writing in the year AD 96, 95 thereabouts. We know that Christians all over the Roman Empire are under persecution. Some of the folks who would receive this letter would have had family members arrested, tried, tortured, put to death. John himself was incarcerated for his faith as he's writing this epistle. He is in the Greek island of Patmos in exile. And one morning, the risen, exalted Christ engages John and takes John into almost the best way to describe it is a spiritual trance. And he begins to tell John about all of eternity. And John ends up writing about what was, what is, and what is still to come. And this morning, the focus is on what is still to come. And John is incredibly excited. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, Richard, is that really where you're going to take us this morning? With all that we are facing as individuals in our private lives, in our community, the challenges to our culture and our society and a nation, the world we live in, you're really talking about pie in the sky when we die? Is that where you're going to take us this morning? Come on, surely you've got something more than just that. Well, if that describes you, please be patient with me. Because what John is writing about here 
is the remodeling of reality as we know it. Because at the end of all time, when Christ returns, he will bring with him a new heaven and a new earth. And the reason that that is pertinent for us this morning is this, that although we may be facing challenges in our own life, although as a nation we may be going through difficult days, please hear this. When you were in your teenage years and applied for college, you applied for college because of your hopes and dreams of the future. The day you got married, you got married because of your hopes and dreams of the future. When you move into a new home, when you apply for a new job, you do so on the basis of what you hope your hopes and dreams will be. We always live with one eye to the future and one on the past. Consistently. It's a healthy process. And that's exactly what John is saying to these young churches in seven cities in Asia Minor facing persecution and challenge. He is saying to them, let me show you how it all turns out. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The remaking of reality as we understand it. And he writes, I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. But just before he says that, he says, I will, he records the words of God, I will make all things new and there will be no more sea. Do you see that? The end of verse 1. S-E-A. No more sea. Now why on earth is that in there? What is the sea done? to not be in heaven. Well, what John is telling us is this, because John is writing, as you know, in what we call apocalyptic language. He uses imagery and symbolism to create an image that goes beyond the brain but settles in the heart. And in antiquity, in the first century, those who lived in Asia Minor lived next to the sea. And back then... The sea was associated with chaos and mayhem and confusion and disorder quite simply because hurricanes and typhoons and tsunamis came in from the sea and people ended up losing hundreds if not thousands of lives. And John is saying those days are no more. The storms, the hurricanes, the loss of life, the tragic sadness is over. He doesn't mean there won't be a body of water in the new creation. It will be there. But not in terms of a threatening force beyond the control of those who are there. And that's the point he's making. And then he says, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem. But have you noticed this? There's no longer a temple in the new Jerusalem. In the old Jerusalem, that was the very focal point of the city. That's where people from across the Mediterranean basin would go up to Jerusalem to sacrifice at the Passover. They would enter into the temple and they would look forward to it and they would be singing from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, as they made their way up to the temple. But now, no temple. Why? 
Because God himself is there. No need for a temple. No need for a barrier between God and man. And notice what he goes on to say. Verse 3. And I heard in a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. At the close of our prayer time this morning, we read a passage from Corinthians when the Apostle Paul says, We see through a glass darkly. In other words, we don't know all that God has in store for us in the future, but we know this. We know this. God himself will be there. And John goes on to tell us two things about heaven. He tells us what is not there, and he tells us in this passage who is there. Now look at the passage as it unfolds. In verse 4 he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order has passed away. What does that mean? It means this, that there will be no more hurricanes and no more floods and no more wildfires and mudslides in California and no more parents speaking on live news broadcasts at night pleading, pleading for help because their teenage children did not come home from school. No more pain and no more tears and no more grief And no more eight and nine-year-olds wounded and devastated and debilitated by a family that is dysfunctional and divorce comes and they blame themselves. No more. And no more widows standing at the graveside of her husband whom she's loved for 65 years and has been slowly dying with dementia over the last five or six years. No more grief and no more pain and no more death of children. And more important than all of that, no more sin. Free at last, free at last, emancipated from the tranquilizing intoxication and addiction of sin. No more. And no more jetliners falling from the skies as the result of a terrorist incident. No more suicide vests being set off in the Middle East and 200 people dying at an open air market. No more. And no more pain. And no more grief. And although John has told us what will no longer be there, He also tells us who will be there. And at the climax and culmination of all eternity past, 
at the consolation of all of humanity, God himself will be there. And that's why John is excited. That's why John cannot contain himself. Because he has a vision and an understanding and is overwhelmed by whom? By the majesty and glory and transcendent holiness and wonder of him who is incomparable without sin, he who is immeasurable, he who is beyond our understanding, he who has loved us since the moment of our birth, will be there welcoming us, drawing us close. What does the passage say? He will be our God and you will be his sons. And when we get there, We will run to him. And he will wrap his arms of love and grace around us. And hold us close and say, they're mine. They're mine. Free at last. When the memorial service of Dr. Billy Graham was held in Charlotte, his pastor from Spartanburg said this. That when Mr. Graham entered into heaven the first thing he would do would be to lie down prostrate before Almighty God and try to make himself as one with the dust of the earth because the holiness and the grace and the love and the goodness and the patience, and the mercy, and the forgiveness, and the transforming, sustaining grace of God is so overwhelming. Who can stand in his presence? That's what John is telling us. That is what's going on here. And John, quite naturally, is caught up in it all. It is extraordinary incomparable, unparalleled God in his transcendent glory. And if you are saying, Richard, I understand what you're saying, I appreciate what you're saying, but how do I take that? How do I apply it to my own life tomorrow morning when I get up for work? How do I begin to live in the reality of it? Well, notice what comes next. And he says, verse 6, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the waters of life. And here it comes. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. Now, why does John have that in there? Remember who John was writing to? Seven congregations in seven major cities. They are facing dark and difficult and challenging days. And John needs them to understand this. He needs them to take away from Revelation this message. And the message is this. Regardless 
of what you are facing, regardless of the difficulty and the pain and the heartache and the disappointment, and regardless of all that has gone on in the past, regardless of how wounded you are, regardless of how emotionally traumatized you have been by the challenges in your life, please understand this, that when you submit and surrender to him, when you retune your deepest affections, And your prayer brings you in alignment with the purposes and love and grace of God. He equips you to overcome. He strengthens you to overcome. He stands you up and he walks alongside with you and will never leave you, never abandon you, never forsake you. Why? Because he loves you with an everlasting love. Please hear it. Please hear it. But that's not the end of the story. Because he then goes on and adds, verse 8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. I rarely talk of the judgment of God. And perhaps I need to focus on it more on a Sunday morning. But this passage tells us this. And from Genesis to Revelation, again and again and again and again and again, God tells us this. That he loves us with an everlasting love. And it is deep and it is personal and it is eternal. And he sent Christ into our world to die for our sins. But please hear me. I plead with you, beg with you. Hear this. If you treat him with disdain and contempt, You will have to face him. You will have to face him. And his judgment is not to be taken lightly. But that is not the last word in all of scripture. For the last words are summed up in these words. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there is no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And it is out of his love and his grace that he calls to us this morning. And so as we enter into a new week, we do so knowing this, that he is deeply in love with you and that he is infinite and immeasurable and incomprehensible and holy and transcendent in majesty. 
And what does he expect in return? He expects our love and our obedience and our devotion. And he also expects this. That we will live for him. And that we will labor for the master. From dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all his wondrous love and care. Because when all of life is over. And our work on earth is done. And the role is called up yonder. We'll be there. Not because of anything we have done. But because of what he has done for us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the wonderful hope of the gospel. Thank you for your eternal love. Your matchless majesty. And your eternal grace lavished upon us. Enable us please this week to live for you. And to appreciate again your love for us. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. At First Presbyterian, we are delighted to invite you to come and join us as we celebrate the resurrection with services at 8, 9.30, 10.45 and 11. More information at firstpresbyterian.com.